And when I changed to having a petrol car, well, you can guess, each time I went to the petrol station, I checked very carefully, was I putting the right fuel in the tank? Because if I got it wrong, it would matter. If you're going on holiday, you get in the car and then someone says, oh, have we locked the back door? And you're not sure. What do you do? You check because it matters. You're buying some new furniture and maybe your finances aren't like this, but maybe for some they are. You think, have I got enough money in the bank for this? This is a big bit of spending here. You're not sure. What do you do? You check because it's going to make a difference. Here's a serious one. You find a lump on your body somewhere where it shouldn't be and it's growing. Well, it's probably not cancer, is it? Well, if you've got any sense, you check, don't you? We want to be sure of things that matter to us and so we check them. Where you spend eternity, are you heading to heaven or are you heading to hell? You need to be sure, don't you? So you check. If you don't check your salvation, if you don't check you're a real Christian, well, whatever you might claim, it clearly doesn't matter to you. So, we're on a vital subject this evening. I hope that's clear to you. It's a vital subject. How can you be sure you're a Christian? But why now? Why are we studying it now? Well, the reason really is because last week we considered that question, can you lose your salvation? And the answer was, no. If a person has salvation, by definition it can't be lost. It never would have been salvation. But people can experience a lot. People can appear to have salvation and then turn from Christ. Real Christians will persevere and real Christians must actively persevere. They're not like the lobster in the lobster pot. Once in, you're just never out again. They must actively persevere. Now, you might wonder from that, does that mean that no one can really be sure they're a Christian? You don't actually know until you've persevered to the end, and then only at the end can you be sure, oh yes, I really was. I wasn't just someone who looked like it, or or had great experiences that were short of salvation. Maybe you can't ever know for sure, because it all depends on, will I persevere to the end? But the answer is no, no. You can be sure. Not just when you get to heaven, not just when you're before God's throne, you can be sure here and now. In fact, the Bible tells us to be sure. 2 Peter chapter 1 says, make your calling and election sure. It's something we should do. 2 Corinthians 13 says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. That's a command from God. We've got to do it. So this evening is about doing that, testing ourselves. Now, before we get into how we do, actually, I want to spend more time on that we should do. You see, if you don't do this, if you're dismissive of the need to do it, if your attitude is, well, of course I'm a Christian, there might be some, the younger ones, the younger Christians might need to check, but, you know, I've been a Christian for so many years, I don't need to check. If that's your attitude, then you're probably not a Christian. I can't say you're definitely not, but you're probably not a Christian. Because at the heart of saving faith is is humility. Humility that recognises our sin and our mixed motives and that we are very hard creatures to understand and so sees the need for the Bible's instruction to examine ourselves. A person who has real faith, that's a humble thing. 
And so the need, the Bible's instruction to examine ourselves makes perfect sense to you if you have that humble faith. Christian authors from back in history, especially the Reformers and the Puritans, are particularly helpful on this subject of assurance. How can you be sure you're a Christian? And they recognise there is true assurance, being clear you're a child of God, and there's false assurance, thinking you're a child of God and being confident, but you've got it wrong. And one writer gives some tests of this, and he said, well, true assurance leads to a candid self-examination and a desire to be searched and corrected by God. False assurance leads to being satisfied with yourself and and avoiding accurate self-examination. You don't want it. You don't want any investigation that might show up a problem. So if you are satisfied with yourself and you brush off any investigation, you you brush off any uncomfortable examination of yourself or your motives, your heart, your actions or, or words that people might have with you that are uncomfortable to you, that's a sign of false assurance. I'm not saying for definite you're not a Christian because I don't know your heart, but it's a worrying sign of a dangerous state to be in. If you brush off any idea that you ought to examine yourself, If that annoys you to hear that and you react, well, that can't be me because whatever, well, that's just further evidence that there's a problem. Have you got false assurance? And you may be not actually a child of God. Now, I know that's hard to hear, but you need to hear it rather than one day say, Lord, I did this and that in your name. Look at the way I served in the church. Look at the things I gave. And to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Much better to hear hard things now and respond than to hear those words one day. Now I need to give a word to the opposite tendency, because some people have the opposite tendency. Some people are always delving into themselves and trying to figure themselves out and worrying they're unsaved. That, that has dangers, that opposite tendency. Imagine you plant a flower in a pot and you're a worrying sort of person so you think, is this thing growing? What do you do? You pull it out and look at the roots. Yeah, it'll look fairly healthy. Put it back in. Three days later, I wonder if it's growing. Pull it out and look at the roots. Oh, they've got a little bit bigger. Yeah, well, I can't see much change. Put it back in. Carry on like that, you'll kill off the plant, won't you? Now, I'm not saying too much self-examination will kill off your Christianity, but it's not a good idea. A famous and brilliant preacher in Victorian Britain, Charles Spurgeon, he said this, for every one look inside, take ten looks to Christ. And we all need that, but especially if you have a tendency to be a worrier. uh, you're, You're actually quite good at seeing your faults and you wonder about your salvation. For every one look inside, take ten looks to Christ. That's the answer. Well, what I've said so far is just introduction, longer introduction than usual this evening, but it's actually the most important part this evening. We must examine ourselves. I want to show you how, but but first the most important part is to say to you, you must examine yourself. It's a Bible command. But how do we do it? Well, I want to spend the rest of the time on how we do it using 1 John. Would you please turn back again to John's first letter, 1 John. 
I'm having to examine whether this lectern's about to collapse because it's feeling a bit wobbly. Now, 1 John isn't the only place in the Bible that tells us how to be sure, but it is a very helpful place to show you how you can be sure you're a Christian. I'm obviously not going to say everything it has about assurance in 1 John, but I want to give you a good enough guide that you can do some self-examination. And we start with this. Are you trusting Christ for salvation now? And the word now is important there. Now, 1 John is a difficult letter to follow until you realise, and this won't stop it being difficult, but it will make it a bit easier, that it's like a three-stranded rope. Think of a rope made of three strands that spiral round each other to make one rope. (coughs) And as you move through 1 John, you're moving along that rope. And the three strands are always there, and the three strands rely on each other, but you think of moving up a rope and at each time there's going to be a different strand at the front, isn't there, that's more prominent and obvious than the others. The others are there, but a bit in the background. And then you move on and a different one's come round and is more prominent. One John's like that. And the three strands are three tests. And the three tests are to do this. Chapter 5, verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. 1 John is written to give us assurance, to make us sure that we have eternal life, that we are saved people. And so he gives us these three tests. And the three tests are, well, they're my three headings this evening, so if you've got a notice sheet, you'll see them there. Are you trusting Christ for salvation now? Are you fighting sin? Do you love your fellow Christians? Or if you want it more shortly, belief, obedience and love. And you can see these three tests in the language used in John. There is we know that language. The phrase we know that. For example, chapter 2, verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. It's we know that language. And by obeying his commands. Or chapter 3, verse 18. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth. You see, we know that through obedience, through love. There's... He who says language. Now, this is obscured in the English, so sorry, just take it from me, but it'll be fairly clear. He who says language. Chapter 2, verse 4. He who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. Verse 9. He who says he's in the light, but hates his brother, is still in the darkness. If you hate any fellow Christian, you're in the darkness, whatever you say. Or verse 23, verse 23, halfway through verse 23, he who confesses the Son, it's actually he who says, confesses a type of saying, isn't it? He who says publicly the Son is who he is, has the Father also. This he who says language gives us three tests, belief, obedience and love. There's also born of God language. The book is all about how do you know you have eternal life? Well, your life now began with a birth, didn't it? Sort of began. You could say it was before then as well. Eternal life begins with a birth, being born of God. 
And so you need to look for the results of eternal life. So 1 John scatters through it, results of eternal life. One is chapter 3 verse, sorry, results of new birth, results of being born of God. One is chapter 3 verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. There's a result of being born of God. You won't continue to sin. We'll come back to that later. Here's another one, chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Whoever, Everyone who loves has been born of God. It's a result of being born of God. You will love. Here's another result of being born of God, chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. You see, belief, obedience and love. That gives us these three tests. Now, the letter begins with the one that is the foundation. Very important we get, this is the foundational one. They're not equal tests. And the foundational one is this. Are you trusting Christ for salvation now? If you're, going to begin, if you're going to be sure you're a Christian, don't begin by looking inside. That will be a disaster. Begin by looking to Christ. So the letter starts with him. Chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it and testify to it, but it's not really an it he's talking about, it's a him. It's Jesus, the word of life, who's appeared. It's all about him. And then the letter goes on to give us promises. What lovely promises. Chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He gives us these promises. And then it takes us back to Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, it cannot be stressed too much, the foundation for being sure you're a Christian is, look at Christ. Is he good enough? Was his death good enough? Are these promises that rely on him secure enough? Start there, don't start inside yourself. On the weekend before I went to university, a preacher asked me, are you a Christian? I said, well, well, I'm not sure, actually. And he said, do you want to be sure? I thought, what a silly question. There was nothing I wanted more than to be sure. It had been consuming me for the last couple of years. How could I be sure I was a Christian? And he took me aside somewhere private, and he told me the gospel, and to start with it was disappointing because I knew it all before, and I thought there was going to be some wonderful key to it all. But then he showed me and I started to see that I was looking inside myself too much and I needed to look at Jesus and I needed to look at God's promises and I saw I needed to ask myself, do I believe Jesus is who he says he is? Do I believe his death was good enough? 
Do I believe these promises are true and God will keep them? Well then, it says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. So if I confess them, he'll be faithful and just and we'll forgive them. Now do notice from what I've just said, this isn't just a cold belief in the abstract. It's for people who know and confess they're sinners. Don't you dare claim these promises if you won't confess sin. Or if you'll confess it in theory and in general, but you'll never admit to any particular sin that people might like to put on you. And do notice, this isn't an evangelistic chapter, 1 John 1. Well, if you're an unbeliever, actually, it's great for you. Do grab these promises. Do pray these promises. There's really nothing better that you could do than that. But this chapter is written to Christians about what to do now. It's written to you and me about what to do now. Don't rely on the past. Do it now. Are you trusting Christ for salvation now? Now, this is the first strand in the strong rope of assurance of salvation. And like all strands, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, how does he do this work? Well, he wrote the promises. And he gives us confidence in the promises. And he shows us Jesus so that we rest on him. And he, in this way, witnesses with our spirits that we're children of God. Let's move on to the second test. Are you fighting sin? Are you fighting sin? Now, I was once doing some street evangelism and uh, there was this drunk man I started talking to and he claimed, oh yes, he's trusting Jesus and he believed the Bible and he even seemed to know a bit. He knew about Jesus dying and that's what we need and this rather stumped me. What was I to make of that? And, and, And what was I to say to him? Well, the Bible's realistic. It's easy to say you believe, but if it's real faith, then you will fight sin. See chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Is there a strange noise going on? with the speaker I think I've got a loose connection thanks sound like it anyway we will try let's read chapter 2 verse 3 again We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Well, you might be saying to yourself, but hang on a minute. I thought we were justified by faith alone. Is this teaching we're saved by what we do? No, it's not. I hope you can see that. It's not teaching we're saved by what we do, but it's teaching what we do is evidence that we are saved. It's like this. I'm waving my hand and speaking to you. That doesn't cause me to be alive, does it? But I think it's pretty good evidence that I am alive. 
I hope you agree. And it's the same for fighting sin. It doesn't cause you to be saved, but it's good evidence that you are saved. We're justified by faith, saved by trusting Jesus, but that faith comes from the Holy Spirit giving us a new heart. And if the Holy Spirit's given you a new heart, that new heart will result in fighting sin. That's what it means in chapter 3, verse 7. Let's have a look at chapter 3, verse 7. Well, let's read chapter 3, verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Verse 9 is saying this, when someone is born again, God puts a new nature in that person. A new nature from God is in you if you're born again. And that new nature means it's impossible for that person to go on sinning. Now, what does it mean by go on sinning? This has troubled many people. It doesn't mean it's impossible to sin. Think of David. Think of Peter. Or have a look at chapter 1, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Or look at chapter 2, verse 1. I write this so you will not sin, but if anybody does sin... So it doesn't mean that you will never sin at all and it's impossible for you to sin. It's not teaching perfection. The NIV's translation here is right and helpful when it says continue to sin and it says go on sinning. The person with a new nature cannot persist in sin. He may fall repeatedly, may fall even for the same sin repeatedly, but repents mourns over it, hates it, turns from it, fights against it, maybe falls again and mourns over it and fights against it and maybe loses the battle again but fights against it. In other words, if you can dismiss your sin lightly, if you're happy to make excuses for your sin, If you can continue in sin and not care as long as other people don't see it, is that the big issue in your mind? As long as other people don't see it, I can be happy to continue in it. Be really serious. That is evidence you're not born of God. Take that seriously. Whoever you are, whatever your position in the church, however many years you seem to have been going on, whatever people think of you, I was reading something really sad and serious last week. I was reading about a Scottish minister, so respected, looked so good, written good books. I've got some of his books and I find them really helpful. And working so hard to cover up ongoing sexual immorality. His position, his reputation, his preaching, his books make absolutely no difference to this. The evidence is he is not born of God. You and I can't say for sure he is not born of God, but we can say the evidence indicates he's not born of God. None of us can afford to dismiss this. We must be people who, am I saying never fall for sin? No. 
Am I saying we're great successes against sin? No. But we must be people who are fighting it. And don't just easily sweep it under the carpet. As long as other people don't know about it, I'm happy. Now do notice again, it's the Holy Spirit's work. This is how he shows us we're children of God. He gives us new birth and produces its results in our lives. He makes us people who fight sin. And that reassures us we're children of God. Third test. Third test. Do you love your fellow Christians? We've had belief and obedience and now love. Do you love your fellow Christians? Now, when you're a school teacher, it's interesting. Parents' evenings aren't very interesting. They're a bit of a bind. But a bit of light relief at them is spotting which parents go with which children. That can be quite interesting. Often you can see a likeness. It may be the hair colour. It may be the, the shape of the mouth or the facial expression. They may sometimes have interesting mannerisms. You think, oh yeah, I've seen that one in my classroom. You have to be careful, it sometimes can catch you out. I've spotted that very shy children can have very loud and bold parents. In fact, I've wondered if, actually, their loud and bold parents make the children shy. But there's family likenesses, usually. Now, if you've been born of God, you will have the family likeness. And it's this, love. Chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, here you must remember what the Bible teaches on love. When it says everyone who loves has been born of God, don't be silly about that and think anyone with any sort of shape or form of love must come from God. After all, chapter 2 verse 15 says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So there are loves that demonstrate you're not a child of God. So it must be talking about the love that John's already described. He's already made clear what this love is. Where has he made it clear? Oh, in that great chapter 3 verse 16. I hope you know this great chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Here's the third test of our salvation. Do you love your fellow Christians with this sort of love? It's easy to feel love for fellow Christians, for far-off Christians suffering in Syria. But what about that nearby Christian who's annoyed you at church? Any love for him or her? It's easy to give once to a Christian with a temporary need. But what about that repeated sacrificial help to a brother or sister whose need just is not going to go away if we're realistic. It's very significant that those verses I've just read are followed by verse 19. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 19. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth. In other words, what he's just said in verse 18 is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. 
And he says, whenever our hearts condemn us and we need to set them at rest, it's, it's a reminder. Christians do get troubles about assurance. In my lounge, there are two light switches. One is a straightforward on-off. And the other is one of those ones, you press it to switch it on, then you turn the dial to dim it or brighten it. And assurance is like that second type of switch. There is such a thing as having it or not having it, but there, is also, there are also different degrees. And it can come and go. It can be brighter or dimmer. And so, this is how we deal with those troubles we get with assurance. Do we have the family likeness? This is a way of making our assurance brighter. Seeing in ourselves that love for our fellow Christians. Do we have sincere love for God's children? Not just words, not just a feeling, not doing things to make us look good or feel better, but desiring their good and doing something about it. And the more we do, the more the dimmer switch is likely to be turned up and our assurance grows. It's not just an on-off, an on-off thing. It can increase and it can decrease. And this also is the work of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, isn't it? It's the Holy Spirit who works this in us. Now, uh, these people in church history called, uh, called Puritans, they wrote about assurance and they said it's like a three-legged stool. Think about a stool. What's the minimum number of legs for it to be stable? Well, it's three, isn't it? If, if you can think of a clever way for a two-legged stool to stand up, tell me afterwards, but I can't. I think you need three legs. And they said the three legs for stable assurance are trusting Christ now, fruit in your lives like obedience and love and the work of the Holy Spirit. But there was a bit of disagreement among them over, is the work of the Holy Spirit a different leg or is he actually doing the two other legs? And I'm going with the he's doing the two other legs option. I'm saying in 1 John we have a three-stranded rope and to be strong enough it's got to have all these three strands, belief, obedience and love. But it's the Holy Spirit who gives us all three. He gives us belief and makes us confident we're believing. He works that obedience in us. He works that love in us. And that's how he witnesses to our spirit that we're children of God. Chapter 5, verse 13. Let's go back to that to finish. Chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. It is possible to be sure you are a child of God, that you're safe in his hands, that you now have eternal life. Now, of course, this doesn't contradict what I said last time. You must not presume, you must persevere. It fits completely together, actually, because the person who has this work of the Holy Spirit assuring them won't want to be careless, will want to keep on fighting sin, to keep loving fellow Christians, and especially to keep clinging to Christ. So it all fits together. The work of the Holy Spirit assuring us is also the work of the Holy Spirit that keeps us going without presuming carelessly. So, please, please don't treat what you've heard this evening as just a talk to listen to. Please don't do that. 
Please don't just store in your mind, oh, now you can go home this evening and you've got a better understanding of 1 John and you know the three tests. But then fail to test yourself. That would be pointless, wouldn't it? That would be bad. Please don't think, I don't need to check myself, I'm beyond that. I've done it before, that's all right. No. Examine yourself to make sure you're in the faith. Test yourself. That is a command from God in 2 Corinthians. But for everyone look inside, do take ten looks to Christ. And remember what 1 John starts with. It starts with not looking at self, but looking at him, our saviour. It starts with not what you and I are like, but what he is like. And that gives us our ground of assurance. It starts with that perfect balance. I write these things to you so that you will not sin. Don't mess around with sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the righteous one.